Acts 15, it's, it becomes clear that the predominantly Jewish church is coming to grips with how to integrate Gentiles into what had thus far been an entirely Jewish community. We know that it was approximately 15 years from the time when the Lord ascended until Cornelius was baptized. And that step was met with no small controversy. But the will of God prevailed, as Brother Dan witnessed this afternoon. And shortly thereafter, larger and larger numbers of Gentiles were being integrated into the church. And some were inclined to believe that they needed to become obedient to all of the customs consistent with the ceremonial law that the Jews were still abiding by. And this would have included circumcision, uh, dietary law, and so on and so forth. And so there was a dispute. I think circumcision may have been the original antecedent, and there was a dispute that arose among the brethren, and a council of the leading apostles was called at Jerusalem. And I will, I will point out that when they gave the four things that, the Gentile, that they would require of the Gentiles, they didn't mention believing on the Lord Jesus. They didn't mention anything in salvation terms because they weren't describing four simple things to be saved. They were describing four simple things to carry over from the ceremonial law while they were not carrying over the preponderance of it. And so while it certainly is in the Lord's heart not to put on us things unnecessarily, we also know that in 2 Peter 2, he says that the false prophets will be marked by those who promise freedom while they themselves are slaves to corruption. So the idea that God is just intrinsically interested in making life as easy on us as possible undermines to some extent uh, or to a great extent the purpose of the Holy Spirit and the whole law of the Holy Spirit that is realized in Christ. I say that as an aside. That's not my point tonight. But in this dispute, um, in this uh, council, Peter stood and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, speaking of the ceremonial law, which none of us are, are living under, which neither you nor your fathers have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul, and they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. 
Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With the words of the prophets, with this the words of the prophets agree as it is written. And he begins to quote from Amos. Quote, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. And he goes on and he gives the instruction that then was sent with Paul and Barnabas. Everybody following me so far? So James is saying that this prophecy of Amos was foretelling the day that they were living as recorded in Acts 15. Somehow, the, this prophecy from Amos was guiding the process by which they would integrate Gentiles into the community of Israel. And why was that? Why was this promise from Amos indicative of how to integrate the Gentiles into Israel? He does not say that God would return and rebuild the tabernacle of Solomon or the tabernacle of Moses or the temple of Solomon. He says that the Lord would return and rebuild the tabernacle of David. So the first thing we ask ourselves is what was distinct and unique about the tabernacle of David, distinct specifically from, say, the tabernacle of Moses or the temple of Solomon. Would anybody like to volunteer that? Give me something different about the tabernacle of David than from the tabernacle of Moses. The brother said he set up the ark in the middle of the tent with the flaps open where everyone could access it. So in Exodus 40, 40 uh, verse 21, it says, Moses brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up a veil for the screen and screened off the ark of the testimony just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So the Mosaic tabernacle had a screen, had a veil, had a division and a partition blocking access to the ark. But what about the tabernacle of David? When he brought it back, it had no partition. There was no veil. It was accessible. Also in the tabernacle of Moses, how many people were, were permitted to go into the holy place and stand before the ark, and how often? In Hebrews 9, 7, he says, But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So the tabernacle of Moses had a veil 
preventing access to the ark. And the tabernacle of Moses allowed for only one man, the high priest, to access the holy place once a year. But in Ephesians 2.14, he says, Jesus himself is our peace, who has made both groups into one and broke down the barrier and dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. So we've, we've identified two things that were distinct about the tabernacle of Moses from the tabernacle of David. In 1 Chronicles 16.1 it says, And they brought in the ark of God and placed it inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. When David had finished the offering, the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. He distributed to everyone of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread and a portion of meat and raisin cake. He appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord, even to celebrate and to thank and to praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. So some of the unique things is when David brought back the tabernacle, he, he handled it very differently. Now, does this mean that in David's time, God didn't care about doing things precisely or according to due order? You will recall that when he first tried to bring it back, there was a tragedy because he was not bringing it back according to due order. He was bringing it back by means of a cart instead of bearing it on the shoulders of the priests. Do you remember this? And a man named Uzzah saw the ark that it was about to fall, and he went to steady the ark, and he was struck dead on that spot. And this was because he transgressed the order of God. He transgressed the proper order of how God wanted that brought back. And so a spirit of repentance came, and David parked the ark. Now, where did he park it? At the house of Obed-Edom. It's going to become an important name here in just a few minutes. He parks the house at the he parks the ark at the house of Obed-Edom, and he rebukes the priests. He says, "This happened because of you." And so there is a searching and a prayer and an examination. How ought this be brought back properly? And then they re realized that they were supposed to bear it on their shoulders. The Levites were supposed to carry it on their shoulders, and so they brought back the ark and. I believe it was every six paces, David would make a sacrifice of praise. So grateful, so thankful, so overwhelmed with gratitude was he that this is when he was worshiping God in the manner we spoke of last Wednesday, and uh, his wife was not approving. In 1 Chronicles 15, it says, Then David spoke to the chief of the Levites to appoint their relatives as singers with instruments of music, harps, lyres, loud cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. So this is not a man who is cavalier toward order. It has to represent God changing his relationship with his people, changing his access with his people. So the Levites appointed 
Heman, the son of Joel, and from his relatives, Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and from the sons of Moriah, their relatives, Ethan, the son of Cushiah, and with them, their relatives, of the second rank, Zechariah, Ben, Jazael, Shemiramoth, Jahil, Uni, Eliab, and so on and so forth. It goes down and it says, with harps tuned, with harps tuned to Alamoth, and with musical instruments, also with Obed-Edom, Jael, and Azahiah, to lead with lyres tuned to Shemineth, Shaniah, chief of the Levites, was in charge of the singing. He gave instructions in singing because he was skillful. Berechiah and Elkanah were gatekeepers for the ark. Shabaniah, Jehoshaphat, Nathaniel, Amasiah, Zechariah, Benaiah, and Eleazar the priests blew the trumpets before the ark of God. Obed-Edom and Jehiah were also gatekeepers for the ark. So not only do we not have just one man accessing once a year, but we've got the ark in this tent surrounded by throngs of worshipers, surrounded by musicians of every stripe, singers of every kind, trumpets and cymbals and lyres and harps and all of the above, and the ark of God is in the middle. Now, what did the ark of God represent? We're told that the Lord dwelt, His presence resided between the cherubim that were over the ark. Now, if you picture the ark as a box, there were two angels with their wings pointed toward each other coming up from that box. And the Lord spoke to Israel that His presence and His name resided there. And that place between the wings of the angels was called the Kipporet. Is that close enough? from which we get words like Yom Kippur. And that was called the mercy seat. It's also the word that is rendered atonement from Hebrew to Greek to English. So the, one, the atonement with God, the atonement with God, the mercy seat, the access point between heaven and earth was at this ark between these cherubim's wings. Thank you, Jesus. But now there is not a tent where there's an ark. Now there's a temple being built. You remember in John 2, 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it back. They later used that to crucify him. But John adds, they did not understand he was speaking to them about his body. So in 1 Peter 2 and 5, the Apostle Peter says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In Revelations 5.10, he says of the church, You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now the idea of a High priest who entered once a year for the sins of the people is going to change and it's going to be an entire kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. 
who are going to have access by one spirit to one father. And God symbolically dwelt in this place. Exodus 25, 22 says, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give in commandment for the sons of Israel. In 1 Samuel 4, 4, it says, So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So there's this vision, this picture of God dwelling, of God sitting, as if that space were his throne. In 2 Samuel 6, 2, it says, And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, capital the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. Because God's presence was residing above the cherubim, it was even called by his name. Is everybody with me so far? If you stick with me, God's going to show you something that's going to gladden your heart greatly. In 1 Chronicles 13, 6, David and all Israel went up to Baalah, that is, to Kiriath-Jarim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim, where his name is called. In Psalms 81, it says, O oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel, who, lead, who leads Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. But now this tabernacle is going to be with men. It's not going to be in a building. Jesus told the woman at the well, woman, believe me. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And he juxtaposed that to they will worship in spirit and in truth. Those who are enamored with the thought of another stone building in Jerusalem completely miss the point that God has built something far more beautiful, far more intricate and glorious when he assembled human lives and not stones fitly framed according to his pattern. In Ephesians 2.21, it says, In whom, in Jesus, the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. If we are submitting to God's workmanship, His craftsmanship, our lives should start coming together according to a divine order and configuration. Piling a bunch of believers into a room does not make a temple, does it? But what is the difference between a pile of stones and a stone wall? The materials are the same, but the stone wall comes because of the order that the materials are configured according to. What is the difference between a grouping of letters and a word? It's the order that those letters are configured by. In the same way, what is the difference between a pile of believers and the temple of God. Well, if they are ordered, 
if they are composed by the Lord, if they are fitly framed together, and they understand what every joint and ligament supplies, then they might, it might be possible for them to call themselves the temple of the living God. In Revelations 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the goal, brothers and sisters, that we're reaching for. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and he shall, they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. The end of the matter is for us to become a corporate sanctuary where the glory of God resides. That is the vision of heaven in its final stages. The tabernacle of David was a place of praise, a place of joy and worship, a place where all the worshipers, where all the Levites could gather and lift up their voices in praise to God. Thank you, Jesus. Now let me ask you, how are we going to see God's temple built on earth? How is his kingdom going to come on earth? Is it not by catching a spiritual glimpse of what it is in heaven? The Lord's seminal prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even when he says, whatever you bind on earth, it can and should be rendered, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. There has to be some spiritual connection. There has to be some input from heaven to earth. The voice, the numinous voice of the God who is spirit has to speak into human lives in order for us to start to mirror down here on earth realities that already exist in heaven. So when John opens the windows of heaven through his revelations, he shows us what the pattern looks like in heaven. And that pattern is what we should be emulating down here on earth. He gives us a beautiful vision of worship and glory and praise. In Revelations 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. Amen. He says, God would dwell in them. Then he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be death. There will no longer be mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. In Revelations 5, 19, it says, And they sang a new song. So John looked into heaven and he saw what worship looks like in heaven. And in this vision, the prayer can be fulfilled, your kingdom come on earth as we now see it is in heaven. And this is what he saw. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads upon myriads, and thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. In chapter 7 it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, was standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. Remember what Jesus said when he was entering, and the Pharisees didn't like the clamor of worship? He said, if they do not worship, the rocks and stones will cry out. Well, in heaven, they've got the same palm branches, and they're worshiping, and they cry out with a loud voice. Now, two times now, we've already heard him say that they cry out with a loud voice, which itself might be reason to be expelled from some churches. And they are saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In chapter 11 it says, then the seventh angel sounded, and there, was, there were loud voices in heaven, oops, saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. In Revelations 19, it says, After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And each time he hears multitudes worshiping and he describes it as loud. Revelations 19:6. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude like the sound of many waters. Can you understand what many waters are saying? Oops, I, I, I didn't catch that. No, many waters is like a roar. John saw worship in heaven, and it was so overpowering, it was like standing near a waterfall. I, I heard something like the voice of a great multitude like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying. So all of this describes what the people sounded like who were saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. In Revelations 15, he says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name were standing upon the sea of glass holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses. Those who were victorious, those who made it through all the trials of the earth, who finally got to that peaceful shore of a better country, the Lord was waiting there to hand out musical instruments and say, let's start worshiping. And they sang the song of Moses and the bondservant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, O King of the nations. So are we getting a glimpse of what worship looks like in heaven? And can we pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as we now see it is in heaven. In Revelations 21, he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. But what is this New Jerusalem? 
In Hebrews 12, it says, you have not come to a mountain that may be touched. But then he tells them what they have come to. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. Now, I want to draw your attention here that in Hebrews 12, he does not tell Christians they will someday come. He does not say you will someday come to Mount Zion. You will one day come to the new Jerusalem. He says you have come right here, right here and now. In this mortal bound existence on this spinning earth, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. If you have come to the church that is the fulfillment of David's tabernacle, if you have come to the place of fitly framed stones, if you have come to the place where God's Spirit dwells, then you have come to an embassy of heaven on the earth. You have not come to a place that talks about God and reminisces about what He once did. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enthroned in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. You have come to Jesus. And he goes on. He's talking about the body of Christ. These myriads of angels initially represented the preventing agency blocking our entrance to that certainty of God's presence. Where do the angels first appear in the story of mankind's relationship with God? Where is it? In the garden. They block the entrance. The cool of the day spiritual relationship man had with God He's sent out, and the angels are saying, you can't come any closer. And then those angels over the ark are in the same posture. They're in a protective, guarding posture, as if to ward off and say, only one man can come once a year and tie a rope to his ankle in case he dies. You can drag him out because you cannot come in here. Now, that's actually what they did. But now... When, 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 when Jacob had his dream at Bethel, the house of God, he saw the heavens open and a ladder descending. And it was a connection between heaven and earth. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on that ladder. And then on the night when Jesus was born at Bethlehem, the same vision is seen. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill to men. And then when Nathanael comes to Jesus, and Jesus discerns where he was at before he came, he says, oh, you are the king of Israel. And he says, do you say this because I saw you under the fig tree? I tell you, you will see greater things than this. You will see the heavens opened. This is the reconciliation, brothers and sisters, between that high realm of God's presence and this low realm that has been under the dominion of the evil one for so long. 
you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So in this vision, the ladder is the Son of Man. Do you see it? Christ, the corporate Christ, as the temple of God, is like this veritable elevator shaft. This connection where his feet are planted upon the earth, but his head is in heaven. And into that place, we flee for refuge. Amen. Into that place, we get out of this dominion of darkness, of this dominion under the control of the evil one. So he says, you have come to the church of the firstborn, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to God, to Jesus. And in that sense, when we are in the spirit in the church, we are in heavenly places. Maybe even tonight, there will be moments when his presence comes so close and his word is so resonant with our spirits that we feel ourselves defying the boundaries and limitations of this death-bound existence. And feeling as if we're sitting before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in heavenly places. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 1, it says, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with the view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Glory descends as praises ascend. Amen? Glory comes down as our worship and adoration go up. In Revelation 5, it says that the living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp, and golden bowls full of prayers, of incense. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. Amen. But this is, this is what it's like in heaven. We're wanting to see that realized on earth. Thank you, Lord. In Hebrews 4, it says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. In Psalms, it says, you are holy, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. The cherubim that once guarded the entrance to God's presence now welcome us. Now they are ministers to the heirs of salvation. Do you understand? One of these cherubims slapped Peter on the side one night when the church was praying as if to say, I'm here to minister to one of the heirs of salvation. Get up and be going. Amen. This is what is seen. We don't see them now. Unless the Lord opens our eyes, we don't see them now. But there are principalities and powers who are still under God's control. There are angelic hosts who are exceptionally interested in what is happening through the church. They long to look into these things and cannot. But they're there as ministering spirits, just as they were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, just as they were with Peter in the prison. Amen. And what is, 
What is it that satisfies that wrath that once caused the cherubim to prevent us? It is the blood of a high priest. When Jesus, when the high priest would go in, he would take the sprinkling of blood and he would sprinkle it in the presence of God as if to give acknowledgement. Amen. But we know that that sprinkling was not the ultimate sacrifice. In Hebrews 10, it says, Therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil of his flesh. And since we have a a great high priest over the house of God, let us have full assurance. Now, I want to think about this for a second. The blood that Jesus shed on the cross was not to solve a legal problem. The blood that he shed on the cross was to provide access to the Spirit. He wanted to make a way for us to become one with God. What happened, brothers and sisters, at the moment of his death? What happened in the temple? The veil that was blocking that access into the glory of God's presence. That veil was torn from top to bottom as if God himself had ripped it and said, now you can come in. Those cherubim represented the angelic host that were preventing us, that were condemning us, that were Bearing the law instituted by angels, amen, mediated by angels, etc., etc. The Elohim of his wrath, behold, I put my angel in him. We'll get into this more tomorrow. Those angels were once preventing agents. But after Jesus went in and made that complete sacrifice, not of a sprinkle from his hand, but of his own life, the, the solution, the result was not that he came out and said, okay, y'all can live for yourself now. The result was, therefore, you have confident access to enter the holy place. The goal of the cross is not realized until we pass through the veil into the holy place. That's why he called himself the door. Amen. That's why Paul said when he met believers at Ephesus, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Most Christians would think that was an unintelligible question because they think believing is receiving the Holy Spirit. Paul hadn't been so educated. So he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, we haven't heard about the Holy Spirit. His immediate question is, how were you baptized then? Because he's like, if you were baptized into the sacrifice that satisfied that judgment that was preventing you, then you ought to have gone into the holy place. You ought to know the the certainty of God's presence behind the veil. I said, well, into John's baptism, he corrected that. He himself is our peace, who has made both groups into one and broken down the barrier and the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, 
and might reconcile them both in one body to God. Now, he's not just talking about a legal reconciliation. He's talking about joining two parties in a true covenant consummation, in a true unity, in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity, and he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. Gentiles who were far away, he said, you can have the same access. And Jews who were near, he said, you can have the same access because the veil is torn. Thank you, Jesus. So James was saying that what, when the Gentiles started coming to the church, it was going to be the fulfillment and the rebuilding of David's tabernacle. Amen. This is eternal life. To know the only true God in Jesus Christ to me is sent. He likened it to David's tabernacle because David's tabernacle was a prototype of the access that many had to the Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amos says, In that day I will raise up the fallen tabernacle of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. Now, this is the passage James was quoting from. He says, I'm going to raise up the tabernacle of David that they may possess the remnant of huh? Edom. Who, what did Edom represent? They were the descendants of Esau. And so when Amos says the restoration of David's tabernacle will allow them to possess the remnant of Edom, he's saying this is the time when God's going to bring Gentiles into the covenant of Israel. Do you understand? James saw the church as the, rest, as the restored tabernacle of David and therefore the fulfillment of this Amos 9 scripture. Everybody with me? And yet look at, look at some of the markers. Let's get into it a little deeper. Does everybody still follow with me or do we need to take a break? Good, because we're not going to. David's tabernacle is a time, only one time, when they took the ark, which was God's presence, and they put it in a tent where not one, but hundreds were there. And who, among the many, who was there with them, worshiping? Obed-Edom with his 68 relatives. This is the only time in Hebrew history when a Gentile was brought in with 68 of his Gentile relatives. Worshipper from among the Gentiles is what his name means. He was brought in and participated in this glorious, continuous praise. They only offered blood sacrifices one time. And that was at the dedication of this tabernacle. And from that day on, continuously, it was an atmosphere of worship, praise, music, rejoicing, and gladness. And all of these people, all the Levites and all the house of Obed-Edom were together in one tabernacle. Now, 
Mind you, Moses' tabernacle was still standing. And David would go to that tabernacle to make the blood sacrifices. But the ark, the presence of God, was now in the tabernacle of David. And all these people, including Gentiles, had access. So is it any wonder when James and the church are talking about how to integrate the Gentiles that he says, wait a minute, Amos told us this was going to happen. But is it not marvelous to think that the church is supposed to be the tent where the very presence of God lives? If he lives in above the cherubim, well, then now he lives by his spirit in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen? Have I lost anybody? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> Thank you, Jesus. In Isaiah 61, he prays and says, Grant those who mourn in Zion... And give them a garland of praise instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The mantle of worship instead of a spirit of fainting. So that they will be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that, they may be that he may be glorified. In Jeremiah 33 he says the voice of joy and the voice of gladness. The voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. The voice of those who say, Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And those who bring a thank offering into the house of the Lord, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were at first, says the Lord. What is the church supposed to look like? Well, we've got two images. One on earth in a prototype stage, which is the tabernacle of David. And then we've got another in heaven, which is the ultimate manifestation that we're praying will come on earth. How do we describe these two tabernacles, the one in heaven and David's? They were places of praise. They were places of worship. They were places of thanksgiving. And there was a sacrifice a blood offering that was only offered once at the dedication. And what does Hebrews say about that in our case? That there was one high priest who offered one sacrifice once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Amen? So, if the church is the fulfillment of David's tabernacle, and so much more, then it had better be a place of praise. What is praise? What is praise? Somebody, anybody. I can't find it. What is it? <laughs> Somebody, anybody. What is praise? Giving of thanks. Amen. That's good. Sacrifice of praise. Amen. That's very good. The word in Hebrew means to cast, to give. Amen. It can even mean to leap. Amen. Praise is not, praise you, Jesus. Praise involves our whole being. 
It involves loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is not what we see defining the church today. We see incredibly dead congregations with no zephyr of God's spirit to be felt. Or we see rock concerts that are geared around the worship of man in a form of idolatry. And some hybridization, no doubt. But do we see the kind of humility and the kind of glory and the kind of whole-souled sacrifice of praise that is demonstrated in the tabernacle of David and in the ultimate tabernacle in heaven? Because until we see that, we have not fulfilled our calling as the church of the living God. In Hebrews 13, it says, Through Him, let us continue offer up sacrifices of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, the giving of thanks in His name. You're going to hear some of us from time to time say, Thank you, Jesus. And you're going to wonder why we do it so much. Because He said, Let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips, which is the giving of thanks to His name. Can I get a thank you, Jesus? Thank you, Jesus. Amen. In First Peter, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim all of this is so that you may proclaim the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into light. You're chosen, you're royal, you're God's so that you can learn to praise. Praise is not a marginal second thought. It is the heartbeat. It is the center of God's presence in his tabernacle, which is supposed to be the church. Psalms 9, 11 says, Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the people His deeds. Psalms 27 says, And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. Hmm. Yes, I will sing praises to God. How many of you know that a shout of joy can be a sacrifice? How many of you know what's dying when you make that sacrifice? This bloated stuffed shirt ego that doesn't remember who Jesus really is. Glory to God in the highest. Amen. In Psalms 47, he says, Oh, clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with the voice of joy. For the Lord Most High is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. We don't praise him because we feel like it. We praise him because he's worthy. If we only praised him because we felt like it, it wouldn't be a sacrifice. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance, the glory of Jacob, whom he loves, Salah. God has ascended with a shout. 
the Lord with the sound of the trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Yes, sing praises. I didn't add anything. Hosea 14, 2, take with you, take words with you and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all our iniquities and receive us graciously, graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips, which Hebrew says is a sacrifice of praise to our God. When a person has their iniquities taken away, what does it produce? The fruit of their lips, which is a continuous praise to God. God commands praise. In 1 Chronicles 16, he says, Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. In Psalm 63, he says, Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. Notice he doesn't say, because my life is going just how I asked it to go, my lips will praise you. He doesn't say, because I came in here without any problems, my lips will praise you. He said, because your hesed, because your covenant-keeping faithfulness mercy is better than life, my lips will praise you. Now, if you love God and you know what he's done for you, then you actually feel that his hesed is better than living. Because it is life. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. In Psalms 18, he says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. I do it because he's worthy. And the jail shakes apart and I get free. <laughs> Amen. I don't do it as a bargain to shake the jail apart. Amen. Because not all jails will shake apart. But I do it because he's worthy. And I am saved from my enemies. First and foremost, foremost, the enemy of my fear. The enemy of my pride. The enemy of God, which is my carnal mind. To be carnally minded is death. And the flesh is at enmity with God. I am saved from that enemy through praise. Psalms 48.1 Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of God, his holy mountain. Now let's emphasize that. Great is the Lord. What he's saying is because he's great, he needs a great praise. So this won't do. You know. He needs something that really mirrors and resembles the praise that those gave him who didn't even have the Holy Spirit yet. They were saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb. Praise brings us into God's presence because it takes us from the dimension of flesh and the dimension of problems and the dimension of our head and it transmits us into the realm of his spirit. Amen? Praise brings us into his presence. Go through the gates. Go through the gates. Isaiah 62. Clear the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Remove the stones. Lift up a standard over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called sought out a city not forsaken. But you've got to go through. 
He doesn't say sit there and hope God does something for you. He doesn't say sit there and assume it's already done. He says go through, go through, get up, get up. Go through the gates. In Psalms 87 it says the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. God likes transition points. God likes thresholds more than all the houses. He likes to see people crossing over into his presence, into his purpose, into obedience. Amen? Oh, my God, I cry by day and by night, and I have no rest. Yet you are holy. You are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Psalms 100. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean, well, if I ever get to his gates, I'll praise him. And if I ever get to his courts, I'll thank him. No, 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 that's not it. Praise is how you get. You enter through thanksgiving. You enter with praise. If you're in the court of the self-pitiful and you want to get into the court of faith and power and grace, you need to start thanking God. You need to start praising his name. Amen. And you're going to get over here into the court of his glory. It opens the way of salvation. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, the Lord says. And to him who orders his way aright, I will show the salvation of God. Praise evokes God's presence. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to my God. Many will see and trust the Lord. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Amen. And the house where they were staying was shaken. God meets our needs through praise. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within you? Hope in God. I shall again praise him. For the help of his presence. He says, why are you feeling melancholy and self-pitiful? Why are you depressed? You need to start praising God and you'll get out of that. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved. For you are my praise. Praise humbles us. It puts God in his proper place and us in our proper place. So, how do we praise? With our whole being. But specifically, what does it look like? What does it look like? We give thanks. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of your wonders. We tell him. We love him. We honor him. Amen. How, 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 what are some of the ways that the Bible gives for us to give praise to God? Anybody. Does he tell us to clap? Oh, but we don't have to, do we? Well, we do if we want to have biblical praise, if we want to have the restored tabernacle of David. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout for joy to the Lord Most High. He says in Isaiah 55, You will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Are we supposed to lift up our hands in praise? He says in Lamentations, 
we lift up our hearts and our hands toward the God of heaven. You say, oh, God already knows what I need. But he asks you to make a sacrifice and put it before him. In 1 Kings, it says, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward heaven. In Nehemiah, it says, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. And as he was standing before all the people, he opened it, and the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they were bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. In Lamentations, he says, Arise, cry aloud in the night. At the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the life of your little ones who faint because of hunger at the head of every street. He says, Get up and pray and pour out your heart like water. Now, what kind of prayer is that? Are those thought prayers? Heavenly Father, we just this and that. Or is that pouring your heart out like water? Those aren't voicemail prayers. I know you don't hear me, but I'm going to leave a message anyway because I'm supposed to pray. Those are voicemail prayers. Amen. Amen. But believing that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Do you believe that you can pour out your heart like water while lifting your hands and calling on the name of the Lord? O oh Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call on you. My prayer, may my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. I've got I've to abbreviate this because there's so much. I want men everywhere to pray without doubting, without anger or doubting, lifting up holy hands, Paul says. We're supposed to pray with our mouth out loud. With my mouth I will give thanks abundantly to the Lord. In the midst of many I will praise Him. Mm, I thought we were supposed to be all quiet when we were with other people. And only be loud, well never, but you know when we're by ourselves never. <clears throat> with my mouth I will give thanks abundantly to the Lord. In the midst of many I will praise Him. These things I remember and I poured out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Let us pray that. Lord, open our lips that our mouths may declare your praise. In Romans, thank you, Jesus. Let it be, God, in Jesus' name. We praise your holy name, God. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Paul says in Romans, with one accord and with one voice, you may glorify God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalms 5, he says, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. 
and, make sh and take shelter in you. Th those who love your name may exult in you. For it is with you, for it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. In Luke, it says, as soon as Jesus was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles he had done. I think we might have just experienced that. The whole crowd began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice. Amen. Psalms 20, we will sing for joy over your victory. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise you, God. Thank you, Jesus. We're supposed to do it with all our strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs, with harps, with lyres, with tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the greatest. Amen. It's more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices, he said. In Joshua 6 and 5, it says, when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up every man straight in. In Ezra it says, but many of the older priests and Levites, this is at the dedication, the rededication of the temple. Am I losing anybody? At the rededication of the temple it says, many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundations of this temple being laid. When they saw the new temple that God was building being laid, those who remembered the old times, they wept aloud, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise. No one could distinguish the sounds because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard very far away. I don't know if they can hear us at the cafe, but they might by the time we're done. <laughs> In Luke 17, the, the man who was healed of leprosy, when he saw he was healed, he came back praising God in a loud voice. During the days of his flesh, this is Hebrews 5 and 7, Jesus offered prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard for his reverent submission. We think reverent submission is complacency, but there's nothing that humbles the flesh like heartfelt praise and worship. Amen. And Jesus, God in the flesh, prayed with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him. Let us be like him. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus, God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And when the time for the burning of incense came, this is Luke, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. There's a place for group prayer. 
Acts 1.14, they all join together constantly in prayer along with Mary, the mother of, of Jesus, and with his brothers. So don't, don't tell us that we can't pray together. Luke 4, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Acts 4, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Acts 12, when, he, when, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Amen. Jesus, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two, of you, two or more of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father, for where two or three agree and come together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. I will shout for joy when you are victorious. I will lift up my banners in your name. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. In, is it, is it Hosea? I believe it is. He says, go and, and take a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. But if you look it up in the literal, it means go and sacrifice the grown bulls of your lips. Meaning that a sacrifice of praise to them felt like killing something. It felt like killing a grown bull. What would it look like to take a, you know, a big old simmental bull or a Angus bull and sacrifice him on an altar. That would not be a slipshod job, would it now? Amen. Well, that's what it feels like when we're sacrificing a complete offering to the Lord of what he's due. Amen. But his presence is not over the altar, any, over the ark anymore. His presence is among men. His presence is with us. He is making us a temple, a dwelling place for God. And as such, this is supposed to be a house of praise, a house of worship. Amen. And it may feel like sacrifice. Amen. It may feel like sacrifice. But the only thing that's dying is our pride. The only thing that's dying are the things that bind us. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Aren't you glad that David's tabernacle is being restored. And that all of us as descendants, we have a good number of Jews with us today and we praise God for you. But all the rest of us are Obed-Edomites. <laughs> Amen. And we're very thankful. We're very thankful for the restoration so that we can be part of this tabernacle of praise. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Anybody? Well, I'll give you just a couple more. Miriam the prophetess Aaron's sister took a tambourine in her hand and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might. Now is this choreographed dancing? You know the No. This is somebody full of exuberant gratitude for the Lord. Amen. This is somebody getting outside themselves. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of Yahweh with shouts 
and the sound of trumpets as the ark of Yahweh was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Oh, and that's one of the reasons why you won't do it. Because there's always going to be someone who doesn't appreciate the return of God's presence and glory. But you esteem his loving kindness better than life. So let your lips praise him. Praise you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. God. We praise your name. Let us go up to Zion. Let us draw near to the Lord our God. Come, let us go up to Zion. Let us draw near to the presence of the Lord. You have not come to a desert mountain, but you have come to the To the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, where there are thousands and thousands of angels rejoicing before the throne. This is the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Church of the firstborn and to the righteous one. 